Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Damn, I don't think I'll ever get sick of that theme. Hola, my quiotes. Here's an update on your pal, old Matty. After chewing through that bell jar sandwich, I managed to pull myself up by the bootstraps and begin my venture. Reading today's sandwich, Journey to the Center of the Earth, by Jules Verne, in order to make my rations for my own journey. Reading this, I realized that by, spoiler alert, journeying downward, our heroes in the book found a shortcut to the Earth's surface. And so therein, your hero discovered his way to freedom. Take that, you damn librarians who imprisoned me in these demon-infested catacombs. How's that for a cheeky update on my thrilling serial? For those of you not following, you bastards. I mean, I love you. Speaking of Brederick, the demon I summoned, far from becoming the comical best friend and sidekick I hoped he'd be, he proved a traitorous carnivorous nuisance who ate my left hand and also was reportedly hard to understand by all four of my listeners. So I killed him. The demon is dead, and I shall search for a new sidekick that is hopefully a little easier on the reverb effect. As is quickly becoming tradition, we shall kick off today's episode with some advice from the greatest writer of all time. Ernest Papa Hemingway. When you first start writing stories in the first person, if the stories are made so real that people believe them, the people reading them nearly always think the stories really happen to you. That is natural, because while you were making them, you had to make them happen to the person who was telling them. If you do this successfully enough, you make the person who is reading them believe that the things happen to him too. If you can do this, you are beginning to get what you are trying for, which is to make the story so real, beyond any reality, that it will become a part of the reader's experience and a part of his memory. There must be things that he didn't notice when he read the story or the novel, which, without his knowing it, enter his memory, and experience that they are a part of his life. This is not easy to do. Like Verne, he wrote many of his stories in the first person, and to me, wrote in a way that gave me experiences through stories like no one else has. For my own journey to the Earth's core, I shall need rations, and so must turn Verne's subterranean classic into a sandwich right quick. Quickly, yeast! Rise, so that I may feast! So first up, we've got upcoming 2019 movies from books. These, I feel, have literary significance, and I thought were worth a mention and a keen eye as they approach. First off the bat is an adaptation of Lovecraft Country by Matthew Ruff. I haven't heard anyone talking about Lovecraft Country, nor have I seen anything about it. In fact, I have a friend out there who loves Lovecraft. He's even read the entirety of the Necronomicon, and I hope he knows how sorely disappointed I am in him for not informing me of Lovecraft Country. I'm not going to call you out, my friend, though. Don't fear. Tomathan. Anyway, this looks like it'll be fantastic. Jordan Peele, who I think is going to quickly become a legend worthy of Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock comparison, is at the helm directing this adaptation for HBO. The book is a melange of Lovecraftian horror and fantasy about a road trip to find a missing person, set in 1950s Jim Crow-era America. If anyone can tackle Jim Crow 1950s America, 
It's Jordan Peele. So unless you're in Brisbane, in which case I will beat you to the library, I think we should all read this book post-haste, Quixotes. That's Lovecraft Country by Matthew Ruff. Next we have Call of the Wild. This adaptation of Jack London's classic story, Jack London being one of my favourite writers, is starring Karen Gilliam, Harrison Ford, Dan Stevens, and Wes Brown, all slated to star in this live-action CGI animation. In it, Buck, a dog, gets stolen and sold to freight haulers in the Yukon during the Alaska Gold Rush. I am very keen to see Karen Gillum, Harrison Ford, and Dan Stevens in action together, and I'll admit I have no idea who Wes Brown is. If you don't know, Karen Gillum you'll recognise as Nebula in the Guardians of the Galaxy films, Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones, Han Solo, and Harrison Ford, and Dan Stevens was the Beast in The New Beauty and the Beast, but one of his more underrated performances in my book, he was the gangster who hires Liam Neeson's Philip Marlowe-esque detective in A Walk Among the Tombstones. Finally, we have Catch-22. George Clooney is starring and directing in an adaptation of Joseph Heller's classic World War II satire. It will never be as good as the book, but I'm looking forward to it. Clooney is a great director, I think, Suburbicon notwithstanding. And from the trailer for this, it looks like he has learnt a lot from his frequent and glorious collaboration with the Coen brothers. Hail Caesar notwithstanding. In other news, I pulled from the New Yorker for this episode something I thought suit Jules Verne perfectly. It's a book called The Spirit of Science Fiction, Roberto Bolano and the Beat Connection. In The Spirit of Science Fiction, Bolano drew on his lifelong fascination with Jack Kerouac and William S. Burroughs. This article was by Valerie Miles of The New Yorker. It has been 15 years since Roberto Bolano's death in Barcelona at the age of 50, but we now have yet another posthumous manuscript in English translation, a youthful and at times delirious Bildungsroman called The Spirit of Science Fiction. As with much of Bolano's work, the book emerges from his archive. It was handwritten in three spiral notebooks, one yellow, one orange, and another red, and the manuscript shares pages with poems, doodles, maps, calculations, and military annotations from the Spanish Civil War and the battles of Stalingrad, Normandy, and Waterloo. The spirit of science fiction is set largely in Mexico in the 1970s. It is more than a science fiction novel, a Cold War one. Espionage, superpower antics, and the threat of nuclear war loom large. We follow a 21-year-old named Remo, an alter ego for Bolano that we encounter in the skating rink and other unpublished works, who, fleeing detention in Augusto Pinochet's Chile, arrives in Mexico with his comrade, 17-year-old Jan Schreller. Jan, an aspiring science fiction writer, enjoys writing feverish letters to American science fiction novelists, asking for their help in calling attention to the devastating effects of American and Soviet proxy wars in Latin America. This sounds like a spicy political commentary, if you ask me. It goes wild from there, drawing from letters to my favourite science fiction writer Ursula K. Le Guin of Earthsea and Hainish fame, and from a lengthy fascination with the poetry of the Beat Generation, such as Jack Kerouac's Mexico City Blues. The theme that lies at the heart of the spirit of science fiction is the notion that the Americas are yoked together, united in struggle. To make that point, Bolano borrowed some of the defining aesthetics of American counterculture, using the beat's spontaneity, humour, and playful rejection of narrative to study the ravages of the state. The book is not perfect, it gets silly at times, and there are often excessive sentences or stray clunkers. It's an early novel, after all, and the author is no longer around to make it better. But it also has some achingly beautiful passages, and its lessons about the reach of American policy resonate to this day. A superbly talented young man wrote it in 1984, believing that the truth reached through art was the only means to revolution. In this sense, it reads like a dispatch from beyond the grave. The soul of the dead author is present in the novel, Bolano wrote, along with the other ghosts. Get ready for some delicious ass bread, my Quixotes.
Jules Verne is a 19th century French author, famed for such revolutionary science fiction novels as Around the World in 80 Days, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and of course, Journey to the Center of the Earth. His ultimate legacy is clear, as he is often described as the father of science fiction, and rightly so. Now strap into your flying clockwork balloons. For classical French authors is where my passion for literature was born. It's classy, it's eloquent, it's adventurous, and above all, it's dripping with flamboyant style. It's like every letter is gilded. I will confess, however, that my first and favourite French writer, Alexandre Dumas, was who introduced me to the wonders of this deep and splendiferous world. What I will admit, though, is that I was in new territory with the works of Jules Verne. Indeed, my only familiarity with him and his works came in two forms. The first was the David Niven Best Picture Classic, Around the World in 80 Days, a movie I highly recommend and which inspired my best Dungeons and Dragons character, Hoju Jr., who was a demented combination of Phileas Fogg, Howard Hughes, and all of the frickin' Looney Tunes. The second form was when Doc Brown and Back to the Future Part 3 connected with his beloved Clara over their shared admiration for Jules Verne's works. Two people who thought they were too old to ever find love again connected over their shared, childish-like love for an adventurous science fiction story. If only it was true that one could find love talking about literature in real life. But that's Hollywood for ya. Studying dutifully through law school, Jules Verne nevertheless found himself attracted to literature in the theatre, those most delectable sirens. He began frequenting Paris's famed literary salons, and befriended a group of artists and writers that included that glorious swashbuckling forefather, Alexander Dumas and his son. It is taking all of my power to not flutter my shoulder cape and leap into the adventurous world of Dumas, but luckily Verne's story is truly captivating enough to restrain me. After earning his degree in 1849, Verne did the logical thing, and remained in Paris to indulge his artistic learnings, never to practice law, ever. So not only did old Jules predict the technological innovations of the modern world, he also predicted the fate of modern degrees. The following year, his one-act play, Broken Straws, was performed. A bohemian writer at heart, he continued to write despite pressure from his father to resume his law career. This tension came to a head in 1852, when Verne refused his father's offer to open a law practice in Nantes. Faced with this ultimatum, Verne decided conclusively to continue his literary life and refuse the job, writing, Am I not right to follow my own instincts? It's because I know who I am that I realise what I can be one day. I eventually found that after this confrontation, father and son did see eye to eye again, allowing Jules Verne to move onwards unto marriage. But I jump ahead of myself. After all, even for the legends, it is a long, painful road to become a writer. Instead of a shiny law practice... The aspiring writer took a meagre-paying job as secretary to the Théâtre Lyrique, giving him the platform to produce Blind Man's Bluff and The Companions of the Marjolaine. Then in 1856, Verne met and fell in love with Honorine de Vianne, a young widow with two daughters. What a champ. They married in 1857, and realising he needed a stronger financial foundation, Verne began working as a stockbroker. However, he refused to abandon his writing career, and that year he also published his first book, The 1857 Salon. Like Hemingway, Jules Verne woke up early in the mornings for time to write and then consorted with society after work, known to be far better at repartee than in business. I myself am nocturnal, and try as I might, I never could get in the steady routine of writing at dawn before the day could bear down, and thus I am doomed to work nocturnally, destroying myself like the poor, unfortunate, tortured artist. God, I'm poetic. In 1861, the couple's only child, Michel Jean-Pierre Verne, was born who became very relevant in Verne's later life. Verne's literary career had failed to gain traction, unfortunately, to that point, but his luck would change with his introduction to editor and publisher Pierre-Jules Herzel in 1862. 
Verne was working on a novel that imbued a heavy dose of scientific research into an adventure narrative, and in Herzl he found a champion for his developing style. But what was that novel, you ask? Why, tis of course our delicious word sandwich of today. Although Verne's career as a writer had begun in 1850, his works enjoyed little popular success before the publication of A Journey to the Centre of the Earth in November 1864. I am excited to read more of Verne's earlier works, curious as I am to find what was different about Journey, what was that it factor that made it pop where others failed. The novel sold so well that his boy Herzl offered Verne a 50% increase in payments for all future novels. Herzl had no qualms about paying 3,000 French francs per novel, and considering how Verne grew to become a titan of adventure, I'd say the publisher got a bargain and he knew it. This significant increase in his earnings enabled Verne to resign his job as a stockbroker. Ain't that the dream? He spent the remaining years of his life as a full-time writer of science fiction novels. His work remained popular both in France and around the world, and is, in fact, the second most translated writer of all time behind Agatha Christie. And boy, do I have opinions on her work but I shall shake the world with them another day. Verne's publisher, at first, thought that A Journey to the Centre of the Earth and Verne's many other science fiction novels describing fantastic voyages would appeal almost exclusively to young children. Adult readers, however, also discovered much of interest in Verne's writings, and sales of Verne's books were higher than expected. I've only read this story as an adult, but I will say going in I expected much more of a rollicking adventure tale in the vein of Dumas or Raphael Sabatini. What I got was good, but not that. It was, in truth, the colourful recollections of a young scientist on a scientific expedition, not a treasure hunt. This isn't Indiana Jones, Uncharted, or Brendan Fraser. This is the wonders of speculative, highly researched and detailed science. Not exactly correct science, but science nonetheless. The original magic school bus. I went through this story twice. Once with that tiny narrator in my mind, the second on Audible listening to Tim Curry's superb read-through. I must say, my quixotes, that I think Jules Verne himself would be proud of this somehow at once fresh, faithful, and buoyant revival of his story, and would laud the use of technology to listen. So by no means feel unfaithful or less legitimate by taking in the story with Audible's production of A Journey to the Centre of the Earth. As it is read by Tim Curry, it is in a way that makes every layer of Verne's world bloom into life. A Journey to the Centre of the Earth is the second of Jules Verne's voyages extraordinaire, a vast project entailing nearly a score of novels about adventures on, beneath, and above the earth and seas. The book was inspired by Charles Liel's Geological Evidences of the Antiquity of Man of 1863, and probably also influenced by Liel's early groundbreaking work, Principles of Geology. Thank you, Wikipedia. And by the way, this inspiration shows. By combining diligent research into scientific fact and hypothesis with his natural bent as a storyteller, he moulded a popular form of narrative which appealed to his 19th century audience's appetite for tales of wonder. Often erroneously thought of as exclusively for kids, his work surpasses his peers in its appeal to adult readers as well and in terms of credibility of detail, atmosphere, and subtlety of characterization. Unfortunately, Verne has not always been served well by translators, and in the full extent of his remarkable accomplishment is now only beginning to be appreciated. However, if you find the level of detail in the fauna and geology arresting the story's adventurous momentum, as I confess I did now and then, Curry's jovial, outlandish, and various voices kept the tale rollicking along merrily. It should also be noted that Verne wrote his books when the revolutionary theories of Charles Darwin and Charles Lyell were reshaping man's knowledge of the physical history and processes of the natural world, and when new mechanical inventions and technologies were transforming every aspect of social and economic life. Initially, he welcomed these changes and held optimistically to the view that knowledge was good in and of itself. Aww and that man was ennobled in his attempts to search out new experiences. 
Gradually, his books show getting darker and darker and all the more foreboding, he came to share some of his heroes' distrust about the capacity of mankind, generally to live in harmony with these advances. In a paradoxical fashion then, he anticipated both the scope and the skepticism of the nuclear age concerning man's very survival. So yeah, Jules Verne really lived and breathed and birthed science fiction in its penultimate form. In a way, I think an English student could argue easily that Jules Verne predicted Fallout 4, specifically the fourth entry in that game series. Inspired by his love of travel and adventure, Verne soon bought a ship, and he and his wife spent a good deal of time sailing the seas. Jeez. Between Verne, Errol Flynn, Humphrey Bogart, and Ernest Hemingway, I am certain that seafaring shenanigans is the way to live. No doubt, Verne's own adventurous sailing to various ports from the British Isles to the Mediterranean provided plentiful fodder for his short stories and novels. Although he was enjoying immense professional success by the 1870s, Jules Verne began experiencing more strife in his personal life. Good rhyme, hell yeah. He sent his rebellious son to a reformatory in 1876, and a few years later, Michel caused more trouble through his relations with a minor. Ugh. who Michel later married. Ugh. This is gross, and not an aspect I shall be including in this sandwich. In 1886, Verne was shot in the leg by his nephew Gaston. You can never trust a Gaston, leaving him with a limp for the rest of his life. His longtime publisher and collaborator Herzl died a week later, and the following year his mother passed away as well. Yikes. I think Verne deserves extra props for not being an alcoholic tortured writer, though his books did get significantly darker with warnings of the dangers wrought by technology. In David Niven's The Moon is Balloon, which I read recently and has a title worthy of Jules Verne himself, he wrote of a Chinese proverb that I think Verne would absolutely have had to take into his own stride. There is a Chinese proverb to the effect that when everything in the garden is at its most beautiful, an ill wind blows the seeds of weeds, and suddenly, when least expected, all is ugliness. It's happened in Verne's life, it happened in Niven's life, and hell, it even happened in mine. It's the way of things. By all means, we should get upset when this happens, but we must also weed it out and gets to grow on again. And I promise, I may be a young old Maddie, but it does grow again. Additional works surfaced decades later. Backwards to Britain finally was printed in 1989, 130 years after it was written, and Paris in the 20th century, originally considered too far-fetched with its depictions of skyscrapers, gas-fueled cars, and mass transit systems, followed in 1994. Jules Verne himself died of diabetes in 1995, with a spirit carrying on undaunted ever since. Ray Bradbury summed up Verne's influence on literature and science the world over by saying, We are all, in one way or another, the children of Jules Verne. He got around. The bread I have chosen to begin our delicious word sandwich is the baguette, a touch cliché indeed with the French Jules Verne, but this fluffy white bread is popular with children, as are the adventures of Jules Verne. Yet, they are just as revered and beloved by adults. Old Maddie needs a little break now. We're quite deep now and I need to conserve oxygen. We'll be back with meat. Here we are at the meat. It is quite dark in these tunnels and I hope I see a light at the end of the tunnel soon. For I am running out of oxygen, energy and zeal. So forgive the curt manner in which I deliver this gripping story. Axel is our narrator. He is the enthusiastic, excitable, but also quite nervous and reserved nephew of the illustrious, eccentric, and kind of nutty professor and meteorologist Otto Littenbrock. On May 24th, 1863, Littenbrock consults a recently acquired runic manuscript of the 12th century and discovers an encrypted message from 16th century Icelandic alchemist Arnsaknusum. Lidenbrock is naturally quite excited. It's a clue to scientific treasure, after all. 
and believes that Zach Newsom wants to share a scientific discovery with him. However, the professor cannot decipher the message, which causes quite humorous frustration. Luckily, Axel manages to decrypt the document. Ansak Nulsum reports that the traveller who climbs up on the crater of Snarfell's volcano can get into the centre of the earth. He apparently undertook this journey himself. Axel knows, though, that his stubborn and determined uncle will want to make a similar attempt, and decides not to tell him of the find, then eventually gives in after Lindenbrock orders that no one may leave nor eat until the code is deciphered. I don't blame Axel for giving in, and props when due, the lad held out for two whole days without food. Good practice for the ordeal to come. As Axel feared, Lidenbrock immediately starts planning the journey and tells his nephew to come along as well. Tells, mind you. It is not a request. Axel is reluctant, until his fiancée Gruben, his uncle's ward, tells him that he ought to make the excursion. Now, I know kids do crazy things to impress girls when they're watching, but journeying to the Earth's core is extreme. Get it together, Axel. Lidenbrock and Axel leave Hamburg and travel to Iceland. In Reykjavik, they hire a guide named Hans, a placid and stoic man of large size. He's a pretty stereotypical Scandinavian huntsman, but goddamn if he doesn't steal the show as the most lovable and invaluable member of the trio. The three of them climb the volcano crater and find a slope downward, through which they manage to penetrate the depths of the earth. When they reach a crossroads, Lindenbrock first chooses the wrong route. This initial path is a dead end and they are forced to turn back. All the while, their supply of water has become but drops, and it seems that the expedition is doomed to fail. It is particularly amusing herein, and throughout the whole thing, the dynamic between Axel and the Professor, especially when the Professor, when push comes to shove, eventually has to admit when he is wrong. Throughout this stage, Axel is exceedingly anxious and pessimistic. He is intrigued, though, that he and his fellow adventurers seem to be venturing back into prehistoric past in terms of geology. Through Verne's meticulousness of writing these anxieties and geologies, you really feel just how dire the situation is without water. They are in deep, physically and mentally, with little to no resources. Hans leaves his companions to go in search of water. He finds a source that flows through the wall of a cliff and leads the others there. After Hans drills a hole in the wall, a small brook flows forth. This body of water is henceforth named after Hans. It's really quite charming, actually, as they discover new things that they name each thing after each other and their favourite things. It makes even I, a scientific dunce, wish to embark on such an expedition myself. Honestly, this book is a lot of fun. And, as you can see, Hans is saving the goddamn day every day. My favourite moment is that at one point in the journey, I think it's right before Axel is separated from his uncle and guide, he starts to think that things might just be looking up after all. Though all the while, he despairs that he will die of hunger and thirst in the dark cavern much like myself. He starts to try to pep himself up, you know. He can push through and everything will be back to normal. Then he suddenly shatters this facade with a loud, I'm dying, and collapses. After being lost, they find each other thanks to an auditory trick, much like in the use of sound in cathedrals and caverns, and is able to reconnect with his peers. In the strongest discovery sequence of the story, the travellers soon come to the shore of a vast underground sea. This is when you truly feel you're in a subterranean prehistoric world all thanks to Verne's detail and his marvellously empathetic characters. There they see huge mushrooms, which are identified as the giant champignons. In addition, there are more forms of fungi and bizarre plants. The explorers realise that they have to cross the sea, and do so, but this sea is much larger than they expect. On their watery route, they see a battle between massive ancient creatures, the Ithiosaur and Plesiosaur. I'm not going to try and pronounce those again. It's a really quite cool battle that that's depicted. You really feel that two prehistoric titans are coming to meteoric blows right before your eyes. 
As the journey continues, the weather shifts and a massive storm begins. The adventurers are tossed about on the waves, thunder and lightning sound and spark all around. An electric ball alights on the explorer's raft and flames burst out. They only survive by lashing themselves down. Finally, the storm quiets and deposits Axel and the others on the other side of the sea. It is not long, though, before the compass reveals that they actually ended up on the same side from whence they began. Lidenbrock is at first enraged, but then cheerfully decides to plough onward. Ever is his faith. Axel is constantly amazed at his uncle's stubbornness and pluck, and wishes that they could just go home. He is quite the naysayer, I must say, during this journey, and the rare times he is on board and optimistic are beyond welcome, but I implore that one forgive him. I mean, this journey is insanity. Before leaving the shore, the adventurers explore this other part of the shore and discover incredible fossilised specimens from the earliest days of planetary life. They even find entirely preserved human bodies. When they wander into a tertiary period forest of incredible foliage, they catch sight of mastodons and a 12-foot man. Not wanting to be detected, Axel and his companions flee quickly. They also discover a rusted knife and markings on a rock. Sarknusum was there and had found the route to the centre. It is a twist of fate that the storm actually brought the expedition back to where it needed to be. It annoyed me to no end that they didn't approach the humanoid giant, who could have introduced a whole second part of the book, but for the sake of readability and believability, I understand it was for the best. Axel and his companions continue along Sarknusum's path, but are stopped by a huge boulder that must have lodged in the passageway sometime between his journey and their own. Now flushed with zeal for the journey, Axel suggests using firepower to blow an opening. The explorers set this plan in motion and wait on their raft. I want it noted that obviously my Dungeons & Dragons character, Hoju Jr., is fond of using firepower to solve his problems in a cunning intellectual homage to this, and not because of my own pyromania. After the explosion occurs, Axel, his uncle, and Hans realise that they've created a disruption, as gunpowder often does. The entire sea goes rushing through the aperture and the three men are carried wildly along the waves. This experience is terrifying. They almost perish. After a time, they realise that they are moving vertically up the shaft of the mountain. The heat grows and the waters crumble around them. They are in a goddamn volcano. Lindenbrock is not frightened and knows that this eruption is what will take them up to the surface of the earth. Surprising, I know. I thought it was a trick, to be honest. The raft tumbles out of the volcano of Etna in Stromboli, a site in the middle of the Mediterranean. Mercifully, all three men survive and find themselves in a lush, green environment. The setting change is welcome considering the darkness we just went through. They eat fruit and drink from a stream. Stromboli fishermen assume that the subterranean explorers have survived a shipwreck and help them home. After his safe return, Lidenbrock becomes famous and renowned for his narrative and for lectures on his journey, as does Axel while Hans returns satisfied with their adventure home. Like Lidenbrock, I too was disappointed that they never truly made it to the Earth's centre, and while upon reflection I think the book is stronger for the journey being cut short, the treasure being the friendship and all that damn nanigans, part of me thinks Jules Verne himself realised that there wasn't anything new really he could bring to his story, and wanted to move on to the next. It was really an abrupt ending. He made it work, but he had a hell of a job justifying himself. A small side note here actually, one of my big loves is treasure hunting stories. King Solomon's Mines, Uncharted, and of course Indiana Jones. The line between love and hate is thin, alas, for one of my eternal gripes is that they never actually get the goddamn treasure. The little payoff usually just being a bloody handful of gold or a bit of intellectual illumination. I won't get too far into it, I could really go for hours, but it didn't help me with this story, I do declare. In conclusion, the meat or meat substitute today shall be our first non-carnivorous option, that's right, a large grilled mushroom, the more exotic the better. 
to represent the many fun fauna, fungi, and dinosaurs they discovered on their journey. However, if you are feeling particularly carnivorous, if you can find the meat of the ichthyosaur or plesiosaur, that should also be pretty good. Alright, on to the cheese, my chiottes. Uh, I'm so tired and running out of air and blood loss from my missing hand. <sighs> but damn, I'm going to finish this sandwich for you, for me, and for Germany, the country which our protagonists hail. Axel is Professor Lindenbrock's nephew and assistant. Axel is the protagonist and narrator of the story, and I think if you, reading, were more interested in science and geology than I, Axel would very much become your eyes and allow this novel to become an experience for you in the Hemingway sense. He is pessimistic, representing necessary doubt, and represents the voice of reason, which is interesting contrasting his uncle's dreamerish, feverish faith. Axel lives with his uncle because his parents died when he was young, and his uncle decided to take care of him in their stead. Axel loves working with Lindenbrock and learning about Earth and its minerals, and in truth is quite a capable scientist and ward for the professor, who the latter proves he does deeply care for, and their kind of peer relationship as scientists allows for interesting intellectual scientific discussion on Verne's part, Axel often representing what contemporary scientists believed compared to Verne slash Lindenbrock's more radical innovations. Throughout the narrative, Axel is pessimistic about the course of the trip, which he believes will end in his demise constantly, which at least for me provided both a sense of comedy and a sense of stakes. He, as I've mentioned, somewhat, is somewhat naive, quite the romantic for his dear fiance at home, excitable and anxious, though ultimately courageous. Overall, though, he proved to be a fine companion and the proper eyes through which to tell the story. His traits are still relevant for today's doubtful and cynical youth when faced against a world they don't understand. Yet, like Axel, I believe today's youth is ultimately brave. Professor Lindenbrock is Axel's uncle and mentor, a man who works as a professor in geology and mineralogy. He is so famous that people come from around the world to attend his lectures. Professor Lindenbrock is hardworking and optimistic, touch eccentric, and he never once gives up on the journey to the centre of the earth, representing upmost faith in science and the worthiness of discovery. Even his own life is a worthy sacrifice for the sake of science. He is also stubborn, prideful, and single-minded in his endeavours, showing the hubris of man against nature and the risk involved with obsession when pursuing a dream. After the journey, he becomes even more renowned, which he frankly deserved. Verne, of course, though, is not saying here that obsession and dreams always pay off. Indeed, the professor had to suffer greatly to achieve his success. But he is saying that by persevering with one's dream, like Jules Verne did, with belief in the value of your narrative to the world, this means that in the end... Success is due to the true dreamers. This is something I myself truly believe. Now, I think back here to the contrast between the narrator and the protagonist of our first delicious word sandwich, the Oh the Places You'll Go appetizer. Interestingly, here it is the elder who is the optimistic dreamer and the youth who is the pessimistic voice of reason. But unlike in our appetizer, Axel is not measured and wise, but more anxious and restrained out of fear that he must overcome. So we shan't be mixing cream cheese and gouda today, as fun as it is to say gouda. Gouda? Nay, our cheese for journey to the centre of the earth's axle and Lindenbrock shall be old Germany pepper cheese, representing, of course, our German protagonist, the old pep in the nutty professor, the soft white cheese representing the anxious young axle, and the courage of both our explorers in you, trying out something called old Germany pepper cheese. Don't sneeze too much, my chiottis. 
I promise it's good. Gouda, even. All right, my Kyotis. There's a turn coming up. If all I see is darkness yet again, I fear this is the end of old Matty. Again. The second end. Like, when Bumblebee ended, because... Really, the Transformers series really should have ended after the last night, but it came back, and Bumblebee was actually pretty good, but I digress. And now for the source, the themes. As in most adventure stories, the theme of Journey to the Center of the Earth is perseverance. Continuing on the journey despite hardships, despite doubt, despite even reason. When there is every indication that the journey will be difficult, you keep on going. Like Axel, like Professor Lidenbrock, because the outcome is worth the struggle. If before you even begin, common sense, Axel, tells you this will be fruitless, you keep on going. Shut up, kid. You're my apprentice. We're going. Axel serves as the voice of reason in this story. He argues with Professor Lindenbrock that the message discovered in the old book cannot be true, but he is swayed by his uncle and reluctantly agrees. When he finally sees that his uncle's faith in the message is justified, he becomes even more enthusiastic. Despite danger and even being separated from the others, he does not give up. Professor Lidenbrock is excited by the thought of discovery. He makes his plans and follows it, ever willing to adjust his strategy with new discoveries. Hans is the picture of duty. He has no discoveries to make, only a job to do, and he does it well. Damn well. He does not show emotion about what he sees, it is just what it is. He perseveres because that is what he is required to do, otherwise he has no vested interest in the journey. In all three, their perseverance guides them along the way. As a result, they gain knowledge, and especially wisdom. Another common interpretation of the book is that it is an allegory for going deep within the unconscious self. Within this line of thought, there are certain conclusions which can be made about the human psyche, according to Verne. The way to the centre of the earth was revealed when, after several days of cloud cover, the sun appeared from behind them to shed light upon the situation. Perhaps a metaphor for the difficulty of gaining access to the unconscious self. A lot of the symbolism and motifs in this story are simple, at the end of the day, it is an adventure story. Then, as the men made their way deeper below the surface, danger upon danger was thrown at them, and only deep thought and decisive action could overcome these obstacles. Finally, coming to conclusions about the beginning of man, which can be read as the origin of the self, they are expelled from the inner reaches of Earth and escape as better men. Pretty sound interpretation, I'd say. I don't think it's what Jules Verne intended. Personally, I think this story is very much just a vehicle for Jules Verne to explore a scientific thesis of his own without being an actual scientist and enjoying a good adventure story and pretty prose. But if you wanted to, say, write an English essay and waffle on a bit, you could probably come up with a pretty good argument of saying that the journey to the centre of the earth is a journey to the centre of one's psyche. There, there you go. How's that for some depth? Yeah. How's that for some subterranean analysis? I'll be honest, I don't know how to work an allegory for the understanding of the unconscious self into a source. My culinary expertise is still developing, I fear, and that's some expert levels cooking. I have discovered a great source, however, to represent perseverance, satay sauce. During the cooking, it can blend oddly with the ingredients sequentially and mean an odd smell must be endured, and it is a source that has to endear through the entirety of the meal flavour-wise or the dish fails, and, if you don't like satay sauce but don't want to be rude to your partner's parents who have cooked you such a hearty meal, you must persevere, my friend. In the end, even though this isn't the swashbuckling tale I personally like to read the most, and I suspect Around the World in 80 Days will be much more up my personal alley. By the way, don't walk up my alley, you will get mugged. I think this is a fine old adventure story, filled with spicy obstacles and flavorful wonderment, but with a grain of salt as it is concurrently a colorful account of a scientific expedition. Therefore, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, 
by Jules Verne, as a delicious word sandwich by Old Maddie, is constructed of baguette bread, large grilled mushroom, Old Germany pepper cheese, satay sauce, and for seasoning, I have chosen a mix of Chinese spices with a dash of salt. And look, my word, a light. It looks like a long stretch ahead, my friends. But if I persevere with this here perseverance adventurous sandwich, I might just make it out of these catacombs. If I make it out, I'm gonna celebrate. I think I'll go to the Spanish Fiesta with my old buddy, Papa Hemingway. And when that sun also rises, I will feel like a free man again. Until next time, my quiotes, this is Delicious Word Sandwich, and old Maddie signing off. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.